KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is the Rundown, Philadelphia's local news podcast for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. I'm Jay Scott Smith here with Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer, and Bill Cosby is back in the news. Now, he was freed back in June after spending nearly three years in prison due to what is largely seen as a technicality, and prosecutors could be making a last-ditch attempt to get him back behind bars. Guys, is there ever going to be an end to this case? I've had a lot of fascination in it from the start, not only because we're talking about Bill Cosby, but I grew up in Cheltenham. I went to middle school across the intersection from where his house is in Elkins Park, and I'm now back in Cheltenham Township. So this case, there have been so many different directions it's gone in, and it doesn't seem like it's done yet. It just keeps coming, and it's very, very hard to follow all of the intricacies of what's happened and convicted and then released. But luckily, we have the great Jim Melwert, who is going to talk us through all of it. Indeed, we do. Our Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melwert is going to join us to talk about not just that, but a couple other things we've got happening around this area. And we'll get into that right now as we go into our rundown of today's headlines. And we lead off on this Tuesday with the city of Philadelphia having a new public defender. And Sabrina, I guess we've got to start getting used to the name Keisha Hudson here in Philadelphia. That's right. Keisha Hudson is the new public defender. She is an immigrant from Jamaica. She graduated from Cornell University. We have a whole kind of backstory on her history and her life up on our website. But she found her passion for defense work representing death row inmates, which I think is a huge thing. I mean, that's got to be tough work. So she comes from that. She says she wants to focus on criminal justice reform, as well as maybe more importantly, prevention. Here's what she says about her goals. And so can we get to the root causes of why people commit crime and address and support and provide the resources to hopefully stop that pipeline? We need to prioritize social services and education and and drug and alcohol services and housing, providing funding and resources uh, for those programs will actually impact public safety. I am there 100 percent with everything she just said, and I hope that she can bring all of that to this new role. Her main stated goal is trying to do everything she can to kind of help ease some of those issues that are really kind of plaguing the criminal justice system. And we know we've we've heard a lot about everything from bail reform to being able to kind of find ways to make sure that those who are entering the system have a way to at least actually be rehabilitated and be somewhat productive once they get out. It's certainly a different approach than what we're used to seeing, albeit she's a public defender as opposed to working strictly as a prosecutor, which is sometimes what, especially in the last few years, where we've seen a lot of issues happen here in regards to some of the things going on in the city in terms of crime. Guys, her path to this position is something that really impressed me, as Sabrina referenced earlier. You know, and I don't think that everyone who has had the type of experiences that Hudson has had going through her life necessarily ends up in a position like she's in right now, where she's getting prepared to give back and contribute to a part of society that's underrepresented. And, you know, this is not to imply that an Ivy League institution or degree a person makes, but she was born in Jamaica. Her mom left three years before her family came to the United States. She was a midwife. And then she ends up in an Ivy League school at Cornell, 
goes there for undergrad, gets a law degree from Cornell too. She could do a lot of things with an Ivy League degree and an Ivy League law degree, but here she is now working to help people who are underrepresented in the criminal justice system. I think it's a really cool part of the story. She's someone who is living the apparent American dream in a lot of ways. Is is coming from a family of immigrants. It was able to achieve so much in going to an Ivy League university, as Brian mentioned. Just because you have an Ivy League degree doesn't mean that you're a better person than somebody else. But she's then taken that and wanted to try to bring others up and help others. So there's nothing negative you really can say about that. The people might have a few negative things to say about SEPTA, however, and they're discussing a plan to improve safety from this transit agency, which we've seen a number of high-profile incidents. Of course, the rape of a woman on one of their trains, and the gentleman who committed that actually was in court yesterday. But SEPTA has had to come under fire for a lot of varying issues when it comes to safety, and not just their trains, but in their stations as well. Yeah, so Pat Loeb reported on this when they laid out their plan for how to improve safety. It sounded to me like a lot of the time they spent sort of defending and hearing testimony, you know, fair testimony from people like the mother of Christina Liu, who was beaten on the Broad Street line, hearing people who have major concerns. They did say that they are starting this program called SCOPE, which is a national model. The goal is to improve safety through outreach, prevention, and surveillance. But it didn't feel like they really gave a ton in response to everything we've been hearing. And some people are concerned that that's not enough. Brian Pollitt, specifically the vice president of the Transport Workers Union, criticized, remember when we were talking about SEPTA renaming all of their everything, the SEPTA Metro, that whole story. All those wonderful renames and updates and everything. Yeah, well, Pollitt had a, had a few thoughts on them spending money on renaming rather than other potential safety type things. You could name a station the stairway to heaven, and people still won't go there if they feel that they're in danger. I mean, he's got a point. He does have a point. (laughs) He does. He does. So I don't know that much about this scope program. Hopefully that will help. We will just have to kind of see where this goes. And it it does. I mean, we, we joke about this, but we've seen some of the videos of the assaults that have happened in the stations. And we've heard the stories of what have gone on in the trains, both the city as well as another part. It's just SEPTA's got to got to address these things. Meanwhile, we switch gears here and the FDA, they're set to meet to discuss Merck's antiviral covid treatment pill. And for more on that, we're actually joined by KYW Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melward. He's been listening in on that meeting, and he took a break to join us. Jim, first and foremost, thanks for joining us today. we got plenty to talk about, but first, we can go into this uh, situation with Merck. What are any big developments from the FDA so far today? I don't think there are any major developments, nothing so far that, that we've known about that that uh, will happen later. The, the, this, the hearing is you know about midway through, uh, and, and they've just kind of presented, both sides, uh, uh, Merck and the FDA have kind of presented uh, what they've found in these studies, uh, pretty much things we've already talked about, uh, the data supports use uh, in adults. Uh, it fills a need because there's no adequate oral treatment for uh, COVID-19 to prevent uh, severe disease or death. Uh, there's no negative interactions with other drugs, uh, things like it can be taken without food, that, all that stuff. They say it's been effective against all variants so far. Uh, one of the big questions is going to be kind of a risk-benefit analysis. It's not recommended during pregnancy based on some some findings in, in studies on animals. Uh, there are concerns there that that need to be you know discussed more. And then 
whether or not they say that do not use it during pregnancy or whether it's not recommended during pregnancy. Again, that's a risk benefit analysis. Uh, there are also some questions about how this might affect kids. One of the things they, they talk about are growth plates, uh, you know, the things in bones uh, as, as your child that eventually kind of seal up as you're an adult, but allow your bones to grow. There are questions about those, uh, but they need further study. So right now it's only going to be uh, 18 and up. Uh, and again, the, the risk benefit will really uh, be a conversation later this afternoon. We also want to talk about the pill's name for a second. Molnupiravir is the name of this pill. Now, Dr. Richard Lorraine, the medical director of Montgomery County's Office of Public Health, explained where this name comes from. They named it after Thor's hammer. I love the image of that. It was either somebody who's into Norse mythology or more likely the Marvel comic universe. Thor's hammer. Well, all right. There's, let, let the jokes begin on that one. So I love it. <laughs> right, I love his take on it where he's like, oh, it's probably Norse, myth- Norse mythology because that's not that's not where I went. I, I went. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm still waiting on the Thanos virus to eventually show up and just. <laughs> the thing is, you have to be a real deep Marvel nerd or Norse mythology nerd, whatever you want to want to call it, to know the name of Thor's hammer, which I think is pronounced Mjolnir. Oh, wow. Someone is going to call me out for saying that wrong, but I, I tried. I'm, I'm just going to take your word for it that that's what it's called, because I <laughs> had no idea that that's what the name I just called it Thor's Hammer. I made it real simple. <laughs> you notice I, I have not said the name of Merck's pill uh, yet. <laughs> before we, I did kind of have to read that like three times in my head before I completely staggered all over it and, and fell on my face trying to get through. Molnupiravir is the name of the pill, and we could. I can actually do it because I just heard it. 57 times. <laughs> uh, Jim, do the other health professionals you've heard from agree that this thing could be, I mean, we laugh about it, but could this be the pharmaceutical equivalent of Thor's hammer? Well, you know, we, we got, we heard some news on Friday and, and it really hasn't been brought up so far uh, in, in the hearing, but that was the initial findings from, from, you know, the early phases of, of the trials that it, it could present, prevent 50% of severe disease and death. And then that was, kind of adjusted down to 30% on Friday. Now, at the same time, there's a Pfizer pill uh, that's going to be up in front of the FDA probably within the, the next couple of weeks uh, that's in the 80s or 80 some percent, I think was the, the I want to say 89% off the top of my head. Um, so the the difference there is is kind of staggered. Now they, they're, they're the same, but they're different. They kind of do the same thing where they disrupt uh, how the virus replicates, but they do it in different ways. But but yeah, this this is important because all these things that we're doing, you know, with with vaccine and, and you know, the mitigation efforts that have been really difficult, you know, closing schools and, and keeping everyone apart, those kind of things like that, that has to end because there, there are social issues, especially with children that we can't do that forever. And and so, you know, the vaccines help us do things. But then but then the treatments, if, if you do get it. And right now, I should be clear that these pills are being looked at for people who are not vaccinated. But, you know, as as we move forward if you can have the treatment. So, so people do get infected uh, and if they're not vaccinated, we can find ways to, to keep them uh, out of, out of the hospital or obviously from dying. Uh, and, and right now the, the only things that are really doing that are the monoclonals and that's difficult. You actually have to go in and that has to be given intravenously. They're very expensive. I mean, it's thousands of dollars, I believe uh, for, for monoclonal treatment. So it's, it's great, but what it does, but it's extremely difficult. And there's some people who, you know, just it's difficult, if not impossible to do. Whereas this is a pill where, where, you know, you get the positive test and you can just get it called into the, the pharmacy uh, and just go get pills and then take it on your own. 
So obviously that's that's a lot easier than than an intravenous treatment uh, where you actually have to go into a medical center or, or you know hospital or, or whatever. And I know since this is just still a relatively new thing from last week, there's nothing that could make a really say about the different variants of COVID or anything. It's just pretty much it just handles COVID-19 regardless of what the variant is, I'm guessing. Yeah, at this point, I mean, there there have already been several variants, uh, you know, the latest, obviously, the, the one everyone's talking about and panicking about Omicron, even though we know nothing about it other than that there are a lot of mutations. We don't know what any of those mutations could do. So everyone needs to just relax and, and let everybody figure it out. But but the variants that we have seen so far and that they, they saw during the testing, it was was effective against uh, each of those. Jim, I was going to ask you, have you heard anything about what's going on in the suburbs, preparation efforts by facilities, doctors out there in case Omicron does take off, anything like that? No, I mean, I think it's it's all the same recommendation you're hearing of, of uh, you know, vaccines still the best way to go. And, you know, maybe you want to keep your masks on and those kind of things. But I mean, we don't for all we know what they're seeing with Omicron could make it less dangerous than everything else. I mean, it, it's just everybody's just this knee jerk reaction to just panic is it, it's a concern, like pay attention to it and watch it and let's learn about it. But I mean, there's not really anything you can do when you don't know what the changes mean. You know, the, the, you, you look at the Spanish flu and the Spanish flu kind of went away because it mutated into a less severe virus. And, and, and if you think about it, that's actually good for a virus because a virus is looking for places to live. If it kills off its hosts and it's not very effective. So it might actually want to keep us alive and, and not make us, uh, you know, the, the, the severe. So, I mean, but that's that's part of that. That's what could potentially happen here is it could end up, you know, just kind of fizzling itself out through mutation. So to knee jerk react and say, oh, my God, we all better hide in our houses again. You know, we're, we're, we're weeks away from from knowing anything like that. Now, one more thing before we cut to break here, Jim, you've been following the Pennsylvania Senate race closely, and it sounds like that on the Republican side, Dr. Mehmet Oz is officially going to jump into the Pennsylvania Senate race. I I have to ask, what have you heard about this and just your thoughts on Dr. Oz entering the Pennsylvania Senate race here? Well, my initial thought is more of a journalistic thought. And there are a lot of people who have entered this race who uh, somehow we haven't even mentioned, uh, you know, we, we mentioned kind of briefly. Uh, it always troubles me as a journalist when we cover someone more than others because of celebrity status. Uh, we have I'm in Montgomery County and one of the candidates is Montgomery County Commissioner Val Arkush. Uh, and she herself is a she was an anesthesiologist before she got into public health. Uh, in in politics. So uh, she put out a release last night, as she puts it, I'm quoting uh, Val Arkush here. Uh, I'm the doctor in this race with a proven track record from fighting for my patients in the operating room to fighting to lead our Commonwealth's third largest county through COVID-19. Again, quoting Val Arkush, that's the kind of leadership needed now more than ever, not a TV personality who has peddled fake diet pills for profit and pushed unproven COVID-19 treatments. So (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> we're getting into that time of year. Well, we will be as soon as we get on the other side of Christmas. Jim, he's going to stick with us here to talk about some new developments in the case of Bill Cosby. So stick with us here. I'm Jay Scott Smith with Sabrina boyd Circa, Brian Seltzer, and KYW Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melward. And you are listening to The Rundown. Welcome back to The Rundown. I'm Jay Scott Smith here with Sabrina Boyd-Circa and Brian Seltzer. And it's the case that just does not seem to go away. 
after the Pennsylvania Supreme Court vacated charges against Bill Cosby back in June, prosecutors are now asking the U.S. Supreme Court to review the decision. Now, this news broke on Monday afternoon, and joining us here to talk more about this is KWW Suburban Bureau Chief Jim Melward, who also broke the story of Bill Cosby's release from prison. We were the ones who had it first here around the country, and it was Jim Melward who had that. And Jim, are you ready to dive back into this case? Because we know you've spent a ton of time dealing with all things Bill Cosby in terms of this case. Yeah, I don't know that uh, it's diving back in as much as, you know, it's always been about ankle deep. So. <laughs> Really go away. That's one way to look at it. It definitely keeps your socks wet, which is not a lovely feeling at all. What does yesterday's request from the prosecution mean, though? What are they asking the Supreme Court to do about this? So that's kind of a a challenging question because what are they asking them to do is is kind of open ended. What the the Montgomery County DA's office is, is is asking the Supreme Court to review, and and they're basically saying that in 2005. That's when then DA Bruce Castor uh, said that that no charges would be filed uh, because of a lack of, of evidence. That was kind of the well, that wasn't kind of that was what the, when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, in, in June 2021 overturned Bill Cosby's conviction. They pointed to that press release and said, hey, just the fact that that exists shows that there was something in place. And even if it was a mistaken belief, if he believed that there was some kind of uh, immunity or whatever, whatever word you want to use, then we have to throw this 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 conviction out. The majority decision was strongly worded that this prosecutor's office just did something that was completely unheard of. Should mention that not long after that came down, it's rare to ever hear judges or justices discuss decisions. But Pennsylvania Supreme Court Chief Justice Max Baer talked to ABC 27, did an exclusive interview with them, not for lack of trying, wouldn't wouldn't talk to to, to us. Uh, But he kept using the word immunity, which is noteworthy because immunity is something specific and something separate than from 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 this, which was more of a non-prosecution agreement. Immunity, it was explained many times, comes from the court and is well documented. You have to go to a judge and, and both sides have to, you know, if a prosecutor wants to grant immunity, they can't do it themselves. They have to actually go through the court and it comes from the court. So to hear the chief justice using that word that wasn't supposed to apply here does kind of raise a red flag. With this decision, you're possibly any time that a prosecutor says, we're not filing charges right now because we don't have enough evidence, that could tie their hands forever. In perpetuity, so yeah. U.S. Supreme Court, yeah, they want the U.S. Supreme Court to take a look at this and say, like, basically, uh, uh, you know, the specific question uh, th- that they outlined, where a prosecutor publicly announces that he will not file criminal charges based on a lack of evidence, does the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment transform that announcement into a binding promise that no charges will ever be filed, a promise that the target may rely on as if it were a grant of immunity? And it sounds kind of silly when you read it like that, because I think any you know, any person who's kind of paying attention would say, well, of course not. They're just saying, you know, hey, we're not filing charges right now based on lack of evidence. And even that press release from Castor has the line that says we could revisit this if need be. But Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, hey, because of that, we have to overturn this conviction. So, Jim, this is a case that has gone just about everywhere, every conceivable twist and turn you can think of. And a lot of it happened really between 2005 and 2006 is 
there a way you can kind of sum up what exactly happened in that time period that really brought us to where we are now? To kind of understand what what's happening here, the 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 initial assault happened in 2004. Uh, in 2005, uh, the accuser Andre Constant came forward after the criminal charges were out of the way. In 2005 and 2006, Cosby sat for a civil deposition, which he settled uh, a, a sealed settlement uh, for a, a few million dollars uh, with Constant. Uh, fast forward to 2015. That's when the Associated Press uh, asked the federal judge to unseal the deposition uh, that he gave in that civil trial. The federal judge agreed in 2015, uh, the Montgomery County DA's office reopened the investigation. And at the end of 2015, charges were filed. Now, in, in January and February 2016, uh, that civil deposition and kind of the lead up to it uh, was the subject of court filings and then also two days of hearings. Uh, actually before the preliminary hearing. So this this was pretty well dealt with. Depending on who you talk to, Cosby's lawyers said that there was a non-prosecution agreement. Bruce Castor, who was then the DA, ends up on the stand basically on behalf of the defense against Kevin Steele after he lost an election to him. You can read into that what you want and says that, hey, back in 2005, I said that we weren't filing charges ever. And because I said that, Cosby could not plead the fifth when he sat for that civil deposition. Now, lawyers don't really agree with that, including Andrea Constance's lawyers who say, first off, Castor never talked to them about the civil deposition. This was this was a, a hours long uh, hearings where it became pretty clear, OK, this agreement probably didn't exist. And that's what the judge ruled after after, you know, Castor was on the stand for hours talking about this this agreement, which, again, the defense called it a non-prosecution agreement. Castor said there was never an agreement. It was just something he did. And through this entire hearing, the only evidence of this this agreement or whatever you want to call it uh, was a press release that Bruce Castor put out in 2005 saying that they weren't going to uh, file charges at this time. But he says in there that they could review that decision if need be. Bill Cosby has faced accusations of sexual assault that go back as far as 1968. So this was not just something that had just sprang up out of nowhere. It wasn't until 2015 that he's formally charged on the three counts of aggravated indecent assault. And then there's the series of appeals. And there was actually a mistrial the first time around. So after this confusing, maybe it's immunity, maybe it's not thing. How did we get to the point where he ends up in jail? So that was the other part of the request to the, to, to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to throw out the conviction focused on what are called prior bad acts. And that's where in, in, in the Cosby case, you had five women come in who testified that he'd done something to them similar previously. In, in the initial case, in the mistrial, there was only uh, one uh, woman who was allowed to testify pretty much to a T every legal scholar that you talk to. When they looked at this, they were like, well, you know, yeah, that the the that agreement, it, the trial judge is is the fact finder and an appell appellate court is going to let the trial judge handle those kind of things. It would be really unlikely if they if they overturned the verdict on that. What could be an issue here is is the prior bad acts and allowing all those other women to come in. And so that was that was key to the conviction. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court never got to that and never looked at allowing prior bad acts. And prior bad acts is a, is a high bar. It's it's difficult. If you 
you know, you, you, you see it a lot in, in, in drug cases where somebody is convicted of, of dealing drugs and prosecutors want to bring in past behavior or instances of, of selling drugs. And a lot of times the courts will say no, because a criminal case is focused on one set of charges and that's what they want to focus on. So it's, it's hard to get prior bad accidents. So a lot of people said letting five other women testify was a pretty big leap, but that those other women that testified, that was really uh, the, the big difference. I mean, you look at, you had, you had one in the first trial and, and the jury couldn't reach a verdict. And then you have five uh, and the jury comes to a, a verdict of guilty. Now, Jim, this is a story that, I mean, you look at all the allegations against Bill Cosby. Again, like I mentioned, this goes back to 1968, more than 50 years ago. A lot of these alleged assaults have taken place all over the country and even internationally. How did this thing land in Montgomery County of all the places that this could have happened? Yeah, that's a good question. And it, 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 uh, Andre Constant uh, worked for the women's basketball team at Temple and Cosby kind of took her under a wing. She, she didn't really know, uh, you know, what she wanted to do when she was looking at a career in broadcast. You know, Cosby was a, a big benefactor for, for the uh, women's basketball team. And, and part of her role was dealing with him. He would, you know, when he wanted information about the team, she was kind of the point of contact. And then he started kind of trying to coach her in a broadcasting career. They went on some trips together and, you know, so they would, they would talk often and he invited her to his house in Elkins park uh, in, in Cheltenham. That was where she got there and, and he gave her a glass of wine. And she said, she started to feel, didn't feel well. So he took her to the couch and, and while she was incapacitated from uh, the, the, the allegation was pills, pills and wine, he molested her while she was on the couch. And a lot of the other allegations by the time they came forward, uh, because remember, I mean, nobody knew anything up until the, the mid 2000s when all these started coming out. A lot of the statutes of limitations had expired, so there couldn't be any criminal charges because there was something here that moved it from a misdemeanor to felony. And the, the statute of limitations is longer on a felony. Once they went back and looked at it, they realized the statute of limitations uh, was still available. So they were able to reopen the, in, in 2015 when they reopened the investigation, they were able to file charges. So because it was connected to Temple, he was at his home in Elkins Park, and, and that's where, where the assault occurred. And should also mention that just because the verdict was thrown out, he was never exonerated. So the guilt is still there based on what the jury found. There's you know technicalities that, that threw out the conviction. We now have gotten to this point where they're going to the Supreme Court. What are the chances that maybe they agree with what the prosecution is doing and they try to start it over again? Well, first off, to make it clear, the, the U.S. Supreme Court gets thousands, uh, you know, there, there's a number, but they get thousands of, of requests per term uh, and they only take a, a small percentage. So the odds of this actually of the Supreme Court actually even taking this up is slim kind of right off the bat. But then kind of what what would happen? You know, so let's say hypothetically they say, OK, we'll, we'll take this up. Uh, is kind of a good question. And, and it sounds like the most likely scenario would be let's focus on exact on that, that exact question that I mentioned earlier. Does something in a press release saying, hey, we're not filing charges right now because of a lack of evidence. Does that mean you can never file charges? And they may just clarify that. In theory, they could say, hey, you know what? Yeah, that was wrong. Pennsylvania Supreme Court, you were wrong. Let's let's do this again. But people I've talked to, that seems kind of unlikely possible, but unlikely. But it, it seems like the more likely scenario is let's clarify 
what this decision does. It, you know, is there any precedent set here? Uh, according to the AP, the uh, attorney general's office actually dropped charges against a prison guard who had been told in the past that, that he would not be charged if he resigned. So it has, there are ripples from this already. So defense attorneys could, could lock onto this and say, oh, well, you said you weren't going to, you know, you didn't have enough evidence back then, so you can't file charges now. And Supreme uh, state Supreme Court said so. Well, Jim, I know it's a lot going back through this case because it just it's like a labyrinth that's just all over the place of trying to get to the point that we are now. But we want to thank you for filling us in on this and just any final thoughts on this particular case here, considering you covered so many different parts of it. When you have money and you can pay lawyers to do things like this, where they just I mean, this was spaghetti against the wall. There were so many different things throughout the trial, motions that were filed off things. There were stories that were shopped to us where they tried to get us to report on things so that they could go back into court and say, hey, look, you know, so-and-so reported this, you know, of, of past history between players involved in the case. It really gave me the impression that 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 you can buy justice, that you can change the outcome of a case if you have money now. You know, the flip side of that is, would Bill Cosby have been targeted if he wasn't a celebrity? And if he if he didn't have money, would would this have just kind of, you know, would anybody have looked back at a case from 2005? And, and that's that's a valid argument. And you could have that debate. But this was the case that really showed me again this hearing, the two day hearing on whether or not a press release from a previous D.A. That was two days before there was even a preliminary hearing. So. You know, money, money buys something in, in the court of the justice may be blind, but doesn't mind taking your check. That is the best way we can close this out. Jim Melwert, our suburban bureau chief, covers everything from Cosby to the Pennsylvania State House and all things in between here. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Rundown, Jim. Always love being here. Thanks for having me. And The Rundown is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcast. The show is produced by Sabrina Boyd Serka and Brian Seltzer. The director of podcasting for KYW News Radio is Tom Rickard. Me, I'm J. Scott Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at J. Scott Smith. That's real J. Scott Smith on Instagram and Facebook. You can hear me every afternoon on KYW News Radio starting at 3 p.m. for Philadelphia's Afternoon News. Be sure to follow The Rundown. That is The Rundown PHL on Twitter. Again, the Rundown PHL, all one word. You can listen to us for free right here on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Well, just about wherever you get your podcast. So my name's Jay Scott Smith, and I am thanking you for checking out this Tuesday edition of the Rundown.